Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Oh, I'm actually Eve. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Are you? You're channeling the primordial mother inside you, hidden in your DNA? Yes. Yeah. It is a true statement to say that I could be an iteration of Eve, not the Eve of the story, but an Eve. Now, who is Eve? We should probably refresh everyone, especially those of you out there who didn't grow up attending a Christian Sunday school or a Jewish or just immersed in world myths. Eve according to Christian and Hebraic and the Islamic tradition, was the first woman, right? Mm-hmm. Adam was created by man out of dust, and then he's lonely. He evidently needs a friend, mm-hmm. someone to do things for him, and so he ends up taking Adam's rib out and turning it into this woman, Eve. Which seems totally possible. Yeah, and then yada, 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 she borrows an apple from a snake, and it's the downfall of man, mm-hmm. and then she has to suffer through painful childbirth, and he has to get a job growing crops, and it's just a big, sad, sob story of the rest of the book. But the idea of this primordial mother figure, you see this throughout different systems of belief and different myths and different religions. Eve herself, her name comes from the Hebrew Hawa, which means life and life-giving feminine power. Mm-hmm. And in the Talmudic tradition of Jewish literature, you have another figure, Lilith, It shows up as the first wife of Adam, but she refused to listen to him and didn't want to obey him, and so she was transformed into a demon who then becomes this enemy of feminine reproduction and a destroyer of infants, so sort of an anti-primordial mother figure. Then there are other characters such as Tiamat, the chaotic primordial ocean goddess of ancient Babylon. There's Asherah, the semantic mother goddess. In Greek mythology, you have Pandora, the first woman who also got into some similar curiosity-related... Mm-hmm. Hence Pandora's box. Gaps, yeah. In Japanese mythology, there's Izanami no Mikoto. And then in Hinduism, there's Sararupa, the first woman, the daughter of Brahma. And she's actually the female portion of Lord Brahma. She is the counterpart to Manu. Again, you see this idea throughout. Because on one level, it's an embodiment of this idea of what female power is and the role females have in human society. And then on the other hand... We're fascinated by our origins, so we've always wondered where we came from, Mm -hmm. what were our beginnings, and was there indeed a most distant ancestor? If we were to trace back our lineage far enough, would we come to a definite beginning? Would we say, oh, well, here, here she is, here he is? Well, you could never come back to the absolute beginning, right? But we can do something here today where we can blow Ancestry.com away in like T-minus 30-something minutes, right? By talking about this idea of mitochondrial Eve. Yes. This first woman, but we'll talk about more about what first woman means in in a little bit. But first, before we start talking about this mitochondrial Eve from whom we all sprang, this idea of this, let's talk about evolution and something called the multi-regional hypothesis. Yes. So multi-regional hypothesis. This is the idea that human beings didn't necessarily originate with one particular explosion of evolution, Mm -hmm. but that this evolutionary explosion happened in several different places. In the same way, you know, you hear about major inventions where, oh, well, these guys invented the airplane at the same time as the Wright brothers. People were just headed this way. The idea that, well, evolution was headed this way towards humans, and it just happened at several different points across the globe. It's far from the popular theory at this point. It's more the exception rather Mm -hmm. than the rule. But prior to 1987, this was the prevailing idea that our predecessor, Homo erectus, had left Africa 
two million years ago and spread out around the entire world. And then these different populations adapted to their new environments by evolving into Homo sapiens. And although there was constant gene flow and interbreeding between these different populations, everybody remained part of the same species. So they thought this model was the best way to explain all of those Homo erectus fossils that they kept finding throughout Africa, Eurasia, and Australia. The most widely accepted model today, though, is the recent African origin of modern humans model, or also known as the out-of-Africa model. Mm -hmm. It's also sometimes known as the out-of-Africa 2 model, and this is why. This holds that Homo sapiens evolved in Africa and between 56,000 and 200,000 years ago migrated into these other lands. Mm -hmm. The reason some people call it out-of-Africa 2 is that it involves a previous African exodus by tribes of Homo erectus. So following the scattering of the Homo sapiens, they eventually outlive the previous Homo erectus excursion and become the dominant Right. Super eight. And the explanations for the older fossils discovered elsewhere are Mm -hmm. basically representing hominid lineages that had since gone extinct a long time ago. So the idea with the recent African origin of modern humans model, the out-of-Africa model, is that human evolution explodes once, and -hmm. that explosion consumes the globe, as opposed to numerous explosions. Right. So, and the reason why we mentioned 1987 is because in January of 1987, Rebecca Can. Mark Stone King and Alan Wilson published a paper in Nature that dropped a bombshell, this bombshell of the recent African origin model on our evolutionary doorstep, so to speak. The researchers examined the mitochondrial DNA taken from 147 people across all of today's major racial groups. Mm -hmm. And the researchers found that the lineage of all people alive today falls on one of two branches in humanity's family tree. One of these branches consists of nothing but African lineage. The other contains all other groups, including some African lineage. So that was one revelation that they had. And I should also say, too, that the two distinct branches they discovered contain the mitochondrial DNA found in five populations, Africa, Asia, European populations, Australian, and New Guinean. And they found that in the branch that was not exclusively African, racial populations often had more than one lineage. For example, one New Guinean lineage finds its closest relative in a lineage present in Asia, not New Guinea. So this is all new information to them. But here's the kicker. All of the lineages in both of the two branches can be traced back to mitochondrial Eve. Everyone can trace back his or her lineage back to a single common ancestor who lived around 200,000 years ago in East Africa. Yeah, it's pretty mind-blowing. I mean, it's important to stress that we're not talking about Eve and the actual, like, oh, there was this single woman and she was made from a rib kind of a thing or or anything of the sort. There were women before mitochondrial Eve. Mm -hmm. There were other women at the same time. But just due to luck and the way things fell together, statistically, she ends up being the primordial mother figure for everyone that is alive today. Right. She was an ordinary woman for that time who became extraordinary because basically her genetic material is what actually survived, right? And there's this idea that the reason why her genes subsisted while others died away is because of a theory called evolutionary bottleneck. 
And this is a situation when a large majority of a member of species suddenly die out, bringing the species to the verge of extinction. So Mm -hmm. there could be a major catastrophic event. There could be an earthquake, some sort of special set of conditions that would whittle the population down. So it's possible that after a few generations that have experienced this catastrophic event, that the mitochondrial DNA of other women died out. And we'll talk about this in a moment in a little bit more detail. But if a woman produces only male offspring, her mitochondrial DNA will not be passed down since children don't receive mitochondrial DNA from their father. This means that while the woman's sons will have her mitochondrial DNA, her grandchildren won't and her line will be lost. But we know that with mitochondrial Eve, this did not happen. Now, you mentioned bottlenecking there earlier, and this is something I found particularly interesting just about the way populations change as humans expand Mm -hmm. out in ancient times. 2007, Cambridge researchers were looking at 53 different human populations from around the world, and specifically they're looking at skull shapes and genetic diversity. And they found that the farther the population was from Africa, the less varied its genetic makeup. The reason being that as humans spread out from the cradle of civilization, their population sizes dropped. And as their population sizes dropped, that means there's less genetic diversity to go around. In other words, if you were to migrate to this one area outside of Africa... And there's nothing. It's a long trip. It's a long trip. People are going to die. There's a small group. Yeah. You're going to marry your cousin. Probably. Probably. And also nature is going to select the strong, the individuals that are suited for the new environments that are being encountered. Those are going to be the ones that are going to survive. But if you were to have stayed in Africa, then you would have many more people to choose from. Right. To create more offspring with. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we will talk a little more about it. So mitochondria, DNA. Mm-hmm. What's the difference here? What's the deal? How do we straighten these out? Okay. So DNA located within the nucleus of each of your cells determines your eye color, your racial features, susceptibility to certain diseases, and other defining characteristics. So think of it that way. Mm-hmm. Mitochondrial DNA, on the other hand, contains codes for making proteins and carrying out other processes mitochondria undertake. And this I wanted to talk about, too, because I think it's very interesting to see how DNA is replicated in the context of something like this when we're talking about 200,000 years ago. DNA is very long, linear molecule. It's a coded version of how to make another copy of you, basically. Mm-hmm. It's blueprint your, your blueprint, mm-hmm. right? It's composed of four subunits, A, C, G, and T. And the sequence of those subunits, that is basically the material that defines the blueprint. If you took all the DNA out of every cell in your body and you stretch it end to end, it would reach from here to the moon and back thousands of times. Okay. So now think of copying the sequence and repeating it. And this incredibly long sequence, you would see every once in a while a typo of sorts would occur. Mm -hmm. And that would account for the variation that we find with DNA. Okay. So another interesting note about DNA when you're thinking about mitochondrial DNA and mitochondrial Eve is that DNA is then changed once again once it's combined with another set of DNA, right? So Mm -hmm. when parents come together and they create offspring, they're merging their DNA. Mitochondrial DNA, on the other hand, is derived almost exclusively from your mother. And this is because the egg of a female human contains lots of mtDNA, mitochondrial DNA, while male sperm contains just a little bit of mitochondria. And the reason for that is because it helps it propel it Basically, it gives it the energy. It propels it toward its race toward the egg for fertilization. And once it enters the egg, that mitochondria is destroyed 
after the sperm fertilizes the eggs. So any traces of that mitochondrial DNA from the sperm, gone. The only thing left is the female mitochondria in that egg. Okay, so that that's why mtDNA could be passed on only from mother to mother. Well, it can be passed on to the son, but the son can never pass it on. Right. So that's why it's so tenacious, is because only the mother side of this actually survives and passes on. Right. It's matrilineal, and it's easy to track, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not as variable as DNA, because it doesn't have to go through these recombinations, right? It's just mm-hmm. sort of like this pure packet that gets passed down, uh, at least on the female line. So... That's why we have this mitochondrial Eve. That's why these researchers said, okay, we've been looking at DNA. Let's look at mitochondria and see what sort of story it can tell us about our own origins and why they can then track our own lineage to this woman, to to mitochondrial Eve, who provided the blueprint for us. And again, I just want to go back and say that like, she was not the only woman on Earth living at this right. time. There, as you said, there were women before her. She didn't open any magic boxes. Her. She probably no. didn't chat with snakes and eat strange fruit. No more than the rest of us do. Right, right. But she just gave us that little packet of life that all of us have in common, which comes to this whole point that we've talked about before, that we are all related and much more so than we have ever thought. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately the beautiful thing about it. I mean, we love the idea of there being an Eve or there being any of these primordial, original women, Pandora or Satarupa, because it's the idea that this is something that we have in common with everyone. And that's what this ultimately drives home, the story of human migration, that at least ancestrally speaking, we are all Africans. And ancestrally speaking, a large portion of us are ancestrally Indian. These right. are roots trace back through these migrations and really unite us as, as a species. Well, and it really sort of makes the term race obsolete. Right. And also, I want to read this bit to you from an io9 article. It's called How Mitochondrial Eve Connected All Humanity and Rewrote Human Evolution. They say, okay, and this is a game of numbers, but it's okay. really interesting. So let's say that you were born in 1975 and both of your parents were born in 1950 and your four grandparents were born in 1925. Your eight great grandparents in 1900 and so on and so on and so on. In other words, your number of ancestors doubles every 25 years further back in time you go. So if you take this back just 1,000 years, simple math demands that you have well over, because this is crazy, 500 billion ancestors in a single generation. Considering that there's fewer than 7 billion people on this planet, and even that is far, far more than any other point in human history, there's something seriously wrong here. Okay, so this is where this really gets interesting in this article. They say the solution, of course, is that you don't have 500 billion distinct ancestors, but rather a much, much smaller number of ancestors reappear over and over again in your family tree. So these are not doppelgangers or anything. So instead of lots of different proto-humans evolving separately over millions of years, the story of humanity is much shorter and much more elegant and more interconnected than scientists had ever imagined. And this is a quote from Joseph T. Chang, Douglas L.T. Road and Steve Olson from their 2004 paper on something called MRCA. They say, no matter the languages we speak or the color of our skin, we share ancestors who planted rice on the banks of the Yangtze, who first domesticated horses on the steppes of the Ukraine, who hunted giant sloths in the forests of North and South America, and who labored to build the great pyramids of Khufu. And within 2,000 years, it is likely that everyone on Earth will be descended from most of us. It really 
widens what you can be proud of. Yeah, you can be like the pyramids. That was me. Yeah, it was me. Giant <laughs> sloths. Giant sloths. Done it. Arrow, arrow. Yeah. I had great arrow skills. I have great arrow skills, probably encoded yeah. in my DNA. Seriously, it is beautiful, and I think it's something that we would all do well to keep in mind as we get through our daily lives and everything from observing how the guy next to you is behaving on the train to what's going on in the news around the world. You know. Yeah, we've talked about this before, this idea that we're all breathing these same molecules that have existed for millions mm-hmm. and millions of years, and we're breathing each other's foot odor, and that should connect us on some level and make us feel closer to one another. But really, this is this is extraordinary Yeah. to know that we are, that this is a much smaller pool that we all came from that we originally thought of in terms of these ancestors that appear over and over again, these patterns of our lineage. There we go. Well, let's call the robot over and let's do just a quick listener mail here. All right, we heard from a listener by the name of Mike. Mike writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. Got into your podcast last year and haven't stopped since. Great stuff to accompany a run on the treadmill, a long drive to work, or a road trip. Thanks for keeping my brain occupied. I listened to your Contact Lenses of the Gods episode today, and it reminded me very much of a great anime called Dino Coil, in which a fictional Japanese city in the not-too-distant future has been having fun introducing augmented reality into the world. The story revolves around the happenings of a bunch of kids with AR glasses, augmented reality glasses, and the adventures they get into, especially since a lot of the things they can do in the AR portion of the world is considered illegal. For example, they are frequently hunted by an oversized antivirus software that formats illegal cyber information. In several episodes, students are seen typing on entirely virtual keyboards, composing emails and messages, as well as sending each other pop-ups to bother them in class. The strange thing, as you might imagine, is that only people with AR glasses can see any of these things. In the off chance that you're into Japanese animation, you should check the show out. So there you go. What was the name of that show again? It is called Dino Coil, and we also heard from a listener by the name of Austin about it as well. So it is apparently a fairly popular. And I don't know if I mentioned it in the article or not, but some other science fiction properties that involve augmented reality or even augmented reality contact lenses. William Gibson has written a few different books that involve virtual light, specifically Spook Country has a lot of fun with the concept. And Fire Upon the Deep by Vernon Vinge, which I've not read. It's on my to-read list. Supposedly, highly advanced contact lenses play a crucial role in that as well. Cool. Hey, what do you think about Eve? Let us know. Do you find this information as enlightening and hopeful as the rest of us do? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook, where our handle is Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And you can find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.